Hello, and welcome to the Sense and Sensitivity Podcast. I'm Hannah Stella here with my co-host. And I'm Cece Shia. And this week, we are talking about New York society, high society. If you can make it here, you can make it most places. And some of the social codes and activities and also getting into some famous New York scammers. Yeah, including a recent one that Hannah is friends with herself, which is I love scammer things, especially scammers of high society. I totally watched all of the Anna Delvey stuff and read all about it. When Hannah told me that she was low-key acquainted with, I don't know, I think this guy was called the male Anna Delvey of this year. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, we have to talk about this. It's a wild story. All of this, well, I will talk about my personal experiences and then everything else is, of course, alleged. Yeah. Okay. I feel like that's good to (laughs) note here. Everything is alleged except for the personal experiences. And just keep that in mind. These are all allegations. Nothing has been proven. My personal experiences from my memory, which are true, but of course, people's memories are their memories. Yes, exactly. And none of this is usable in a court of law, blah, 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 all of that lawyer spiel. (laughs) Also, if you ever get arrested, don't talk to the cops. I'm here with my lawyer, Cece. <laughs> yeah, but but not really. <laughs> She's not my client, guys. Don't send me stuff for to her. speak on the record for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, oh God. But before we get into it, thank you so much, guys, for really you know, listening to the first two episodes. I think I was a little bit arrogant and had a lot of hubris when it came to editing this thing because I had edited my own solo podcast last year. But we are reading your reviews and we really hear you. So we are now getting an audio editor to kind of solve some of the latency issues and make sure that this is really the best product for you guys. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for bearing with us and keep on listening because we will get better. And also, if you want to share this with someone, we would really, really appreciate that. Yes, we're learning learning every day. But before we get into it, Hannah, how's your weekend? It was good. It was pretty relaxed. We've been around Harbor Island, which is one of the kind of popular vacation spots in Bahamas, chilling, hanging out. I've been sailing around with two other boats. And the sailing community, which I did not, I knew, but I didn't really know how true it was. It's a lot of retired people. And so right now, one of the other boats has a daughter and a friend in town. And so there have been some people around our age, which is like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You're like like friends. Friends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. I was an only child. So oftentimes, I would just be with my parents' friends all the time. Mm -hmm. And every time there was like someone even mildly my age, I would be like, oh, my God, we're now I finally have someone my own age to talk to. And I don't just have to like sit in a room and read by myself, which was honestly a shocking amount of my childhood. I actually sort of relate to that because I'm five or six years older than my next sibling. And so I was sort of in the in-between, nobody my age a lot of the time. But how was your weekend? Yeah, it was really good. We had some friends visiting Nathaniel's my fiance. So went with them to some nice restaurants, went to, there's a series of parties in Brooklyn called I Feel. And they just are always like really, really excellent parties in this venue that has been used a lot for those parties that are kind of in like the burnery scene. So went to those and then 
I really spent a lot of this weekend <laughs> editing my YouTube video because it's been a year since I quit my job. So I was like, oh my God, I need to do like, oh, thank you. <laughs> like both congratulations and also like, oh, I hope it's going okay. So I decided to do like a one year retrospective because I really had been wanting to reflect on how the past year was going and basically spent all of Sunday editing, which is fine. I think I've gotten a lot better at Final Cut Pro too, which is nice. It's like nice when you're like, oh, I see progress on something, even if I'm not the best. So that was my weekend. But okay, shall we get into it and kind of talk about New York High Society? Let's do it. Okay, so first, I think what I really wanted to learn about was just what is even New York High Society? Because as I read these articles about, oh my gosh, a scandal has broken in New York high society. I was like, I've lived in New York for what, since like 2016. And even though I know technically what it is, right? Like I've watched Gossip Girl. That was part of the reason I wanted to move to New York. I still was like, what, who are these people? Like, is there a whole ecosystem that I'm not even aware of? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, New York High Society, it's been the subject of shows and books and all kinds of things since like forever, right? Everybody's very fascinated. And I think it's because Mm -hmm. New York is such an international city. And there's just always been so much money and so many old families and so many of these different things in New York. And it's something that people really like to kind of speak with authority about, regardless of whether or not they know what they're talking about. And so I see a lot of TikToks about like, old versus new money and stuff like that. And from my somewhat limited experience, those boundaries and those lines really don't exist in New York in the way that I think people have a fantasy that they will. Like people who have made their money certainly coexist with people from hundreds of years old wealth. And that's not to say that it's not a sort of relatively closed system, but I think every Every culture has its language and the way that people within that culture, and I, I, I mean culture like a subculture, like a microcosm of society, all of them have that dynamic. Like that's why it's so hard to switch schools as a kid is because you don't know exactly what the kind of code is for interacting with people at a new school. And so every social circle in New York has that and, and certainly the ones with a lot of money and some public facing aspects are, are more interesting. I mean, it's everybody. I, I love glamour. I've loved glamour since I was born. Yeah. I mean, me too. Part of the reason I moved to New York was because I wanted this glamorous lifestyle that I had seen in Gossip Girl. And I really thought, oh, you know, all you need to do is go to a good school, get a good job, blah, blah, blah. And you can kind of break in. But it's funny because in my entire time in New York, I don't even think I knew that there was a high society. It was just not a world I even interfaced with. So I did some research and I was like, oh my God, like we all have this idea of what high society is, but what is it really? So it kind of started right like with, like you said, the old money people in New York, the Astor family. And if you're a New Yorker, Astor sounds really familiar because there's like Astor Place. All these names are from these old money families. 
So Caroline Skimmerhorn Astor, she was basically like the arbiter and the gatekeeper of New York society. And each year she had this party called the 400. And she kind of kept this list of like 400 of the most well-to-do known people in New York. And it was like, you had to try and get into that sphere. I don't know if it's like, did you ever interface with any of the Astors or the Vanderbilt? I, f- I think like those are the names that come to mind. I don't know any Astors or Vanderbilts personally in any large capacity, <laughs> no. But they're still around. I mean, Anderson Cooper is a Vanderbilt. Yeah, yeah. So the funny thing is, I think the closest I ever really got was at Yale, right? Like some of the students are clearly like descended from these families. So when I was a senior, I think what JFK's grandson was a freshman and that was like a whole thing and people would talk about it all the time and we knew like there were some yes Schlossingers yeah I don't know how to say it yeah 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 no him him it's funny because even though they have their own name blah 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 even in college we would refer to them by their ancestor right or like the thing that Mm -hmm. came to their lineage And I can imagine it's probably a little frustrating when you are trying to make your own name for yourself at 18 and like want to escape from that. So I have sympathy there. But I think that's like the closest I ever got to brushing shoulders with these like kind of old money types is in college. It's funny because law school was not as much of that, probably because a lot of them did not go to law school immediately and decided to do, I don't know, more artsy things. Mm -hmm, Totally. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's very fascinating to people to be sort of born into this world. I remember, I feel like I maybe talked about this already, but I remember as a kid, I would read Teen Vogue and they would do these profiles on these teens in New York in their bedrooms and stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, so cool. I'm going to move to New York and that's going to be exactly my life. And oh, I could just be in Teen Vogue in like Waco, Texas in my like orange bedroom with a Target quilt. And I didn't know that these people were like, quote unquote, different from me. And I think in a way it was good that I didn't know that because I think I would have made different choices if I had, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, we all come to New York for the dream, right? I really was like, oh, I see Blair Waldorf. And I was like, I can be her. No, the spoiler of me moving here was that I was never her and I could never be her. Uh, I actually really identified with, so Truman Capote, right? Who wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's and also in Cold Blood. He was kind of an outsider when it came to like New York high society in I think the 1960s, 1970s. But he really was, I don't know, I think he was just like entranced by this world. And he called all the women in New York high society his, yeah, his swans, which is really like a cute, (laughs) it's a cute term because he thought they were like the most sophisticated, the most beautiful, and have the best clothing, et cetera, et cetera. But most members of New York High Society, they saw Truman Capote as like an opportunist, as a social climber, a ladder climber. And he eventually got blacklisted from New York High Society because he wrote about some of the secrets and scandals in this world in his novel. I think it's called Answered Prayers. And the part is was in like La Cote Basque 1965. So he wrote about financial affairs, whirlwind infidelities, 
And then he was ostracized from New York society. And I read it. I was like, that's, that would be me. <laughs> that would 100% it's be me. It's fascinating because this kind of society exists based on intrigue from the outside. And every culture in its nature is exclusionary. And that's not always bad. I'm not saying it's good in this in this sense. But in order for a community to have a culture, it needs to have a way of people within it interacting that are at least have to be learned to start being within that culture, right? That's what culture is. But for these society things, it's a tense relationship between these people who historically have been men, often writers or stylists or photographers, things like that, who really create these kind of lists and these hierarchies, you sort of need these outsiders for the society to exist. And you need the scandals. Why do you need the scandals? <laughs> what service do they provide? Because it, it creates a glamour and an intrigue. Without infidelity, without financial fraud, without this sort of, no, I'm, I'm not kidding. Otherwise, you just have a bunch of old women eating overpriced turkey sandwiches at, in Central Park. And that's not glamorous. That's not fascinating. Yeah. Now that you're talking about it, I'm like, wow, yeah, do we need the scandals in order for glamour to exist? Can you have glamour without scandal? I don't know. So you were actually like a part of, or like maybe still are, I don't know how New York high society works. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you weren't like born into it. So I'm kind of curious. Can you tell me a little bit about Entering Because I remember like the first time I even like brushed up with this at Yale and I was like, oh my God, I've entered a whole new world and I am so ill-equipped and ill-prepared to navigate it. Can you kind of tell me about what your experience was with all of this? Yeah. I mean, I never really thought of myself. I don't think of myself. My friends are still my same friends and stuff. I've never really thought of myself as a society person in most senses, though I, I I do have friends and I am, I suppose, somewhat involved. For me, I think my grandmother, she was a physician, which was not traditional, but she was very much the kind of person who would be involved in these groups and stuff. And I spent a lot of time with her as yeah, a what kid. Did she, like, what are these groups? Like, is it the in Dallas, junior league? It's like, no, she didn't do I mean, yes, junior league is a big one. In Dallas, they have something called Crystal Charity Ball that she was not actually ever a part of. But my grandfather, the trauma unit that he started for children's surgeries in Dallas was, I believe, the honoree of Crystal Charity. And in a way, actually, in the South, these societies are much more defined. In New York, it's sort of abstract and there are different groups of people and different society people. There used to be this thing called socialite rank. But in Dallas, they have this thing called Crystal Charity Ball where 100 women volunteer. And it's a big deal to be like one of the hundred women who is able to do a I volunteer. Don't know still exists. Yeah, to volunteer. And it's expensive. It's I, I yeah. think it I think it costs probably like a hundred or a hundred. I'm remembering this from years and years ago. So if somebody's mm -hmm. from Dallas and this is wrong, I apologize. Yeah. So it, it seemed on a different level like normal to me. And I guess when I moved to New York, it was so different from Waco. I was like, okay, your strategy is just going to be just don't flinch. Just whatever happens, just it's normal. Be cool. Yeah. Just like, yeah. Pretend like you're not phased. Pretend like you're not impressed. Yeah. And I, I have a very funky personality in that way because I'm extremely chaotic, but I'm also very calm. And so, yeah, I just, I don't know. It's really hard for something to phase me. Like I'll note that it's ridiculous, but I won't 
react. Do you know oh, what I mean? Oh, God. I feel like I'm the opposite where, like, my old boss, she one time was like, Cece, like, you can't play poker. Every time something happens, I just, like, wear on my face. <laughs> so I am, I guess, the opposite. I'm very organized, but not calm at all. Okay, so your grandmother introduced you to this whole thing and they had like the 100, which I'm just like, it's funny that there is such a cachet to being a volunteer in something because you're like basically saying you have time, right? Like you have time to do this thing and it's... It's saying, yeah, it's mm -hmm. saying that you have time. And I also think that these social structures provided a way and still to an extent provide a way for women to find the social cachet that men find from careers. My opinion and my perception of it is that people treat, even if you have the same job as a woman, if you are a man who's like a partner at a big law firm, for example, that has a social cachet that I don't think it has for women. And I don't think that that's correct, but I think it's true that people are like, that's impressive. She's such a hard worker, but it doesn't necessarily have the social prestige that it needs to have. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to it because even as you advance more in big law, as a woman, oftentimes the one thing people would always ask you if you got to that level was like, oh, do you have a family? And if you don't, then it's like somehow less impressive or they're like, oh, when are you going to do that? Whereas they never asked that for a dude. Like I know some right. of the male big law partners, they had horrible relationships with their families. As associates, we would witness horrible interactions between these men and how they would talk to their wives on the phone when we were all in the same meetings. And it was just like, oh, okay, well, this is awkward. Whereas like as a woman, you could like never do that. People would be like, why are you in the office? Why are you not at home? Why aren't you already pregnant? Oh my God, that was like another thing. So I made this video right on YouTube. And one of the first comments, like in the first few hours was like, well, you know what? Now that you're already out of a job, you should probably have three children and that will give your life real purpose and meaning. And I was That's just like, so annoying. oh my God, I know, I know. So, um, so there's certainly like this element, I think, where what we think about is a traditional women's role follows us everywhere. And if you do have the resources to not work, et cetera, you still need to like embody that cachet and that like life of leisure in a way that gives you prestige and elitism. And I don't know, I guess rank. It's like wild to me that even among these like ultra wealthy groups, there are still ranks. Like, what did you say? Like socialite rank? Yeah, so Socialite Rank was this website that started probably in 2006 or 2007, maybe 2008. It was when I was in high school, right before I started college. So we're the same age. And it was this blog that just popped up. And then New York Magazine was covering it. Everybody was obsessed with it. I was reading it like every day from my bedroom in Waco, Texas. But it was these people started, there was this kind of new generation of socialites who were really on the scene in a way that I think it must have been pre-2008 because it must have been like a pre-recession era kind right. of thing. How are they different from like Paris Hilton, right? Who is the socialite? Yeah. Like she, I, I also remember her from like my high right. school Right, the heiress. Yeah, I yes. think the difference is <laughs> sort of silly and like coded in a dumb way, but I think that all of these sort of societies and stuff are kind of based on being a known person and how many people you can get to kind of know who you are and look at you and take your picture. But it needs to be like 
the right kind of people, right? So Paris Hilton was doing reality shows and going out and kind of making a show of being kind of over the top wild uh-huh. child. This was much more like fashion parties, charity parties. Patrick McMullen, who's a society photographer, like who's he photographing? Whose table mm. are you at at this lunch? Like mm-hmm. it was much more that way. A lot of young women were doing it in a way that that sort of charity circuit, I think, had been and still is a lot of like kind of an older crowd, right? Mm-hmm. And so they basically, some anonymous people who ended up being this either couple or twins, it's like a little unclear, which is weird, basically started this website and every week they would rank. Wait, we still don't know if they were a couple or twins? I think you can find it online, but I don't okay. remember. <laughs> the speculation, they, this is like siblings are dating. People, yeah, I think they told people that they were twins, but then they were actually a couple, kind of like what's that band, like the White Stripes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's like a thing people do. Weird. Anyway. Because <laughs> that's totally better than. Yeah. So they were ranking these women and it was Tinsley Mortimer. It was Lauren Santo Domingo, who was Lauren Davis at the time. There was another Lauren Davis. It was Olivia Palermo, who was like very controversial and they all hated her because she was younger and like not. So these women were sort of like in an organic friend group. Uh-huh, yeah. Or as organic as, as can be. And I suppose Olivia sort of saw the pictures and thought it looked glamorous and was like, I want to go do that. And then, so instead of trying to befriend them in an organic way, I mean, she was so young. She was at the new school. So she was like 19, 20, 21. Mm-hmm. And everybody else was like probably 27 to 35 who was like yeah. on this list. So it was a big gap, especially we talked about this last week. Those years are such a big change in terms of maturity. I think yeah, 100%. it didn't feel organic for even like a 26-year-old to be friends with a college kid in a social no, way. No, yeah, I would feel so weird about like befriending yeah. so anyone started, under like 22. Yes. Yeah, so she started like buying tickets to these charity events and hiring PR agents that she could go to fashion shows and stuff like that and being photographed. And all the women like didn't like her and thought that she was kind of kind of a try hard, I suppose. Yeah. And then she sent everybody a letter, sent everyone an email saying like, why can't you just be nice to me? And then they sent it to the website and she just got absolutely (gasps) roasted, which is sad. But you know, it's worked out like now everybody loves her. So it's fine. But yeah, so every week they would like rank these people and they would send in the archive is not online anymore, sadly. They would send in these surveys and ask them society questions and which designers do you like? And the, the women did it. Tinsley Mortimer hired a private investigator to figure out who was running the website, but she couldn't figure it out. And then they even interviewed a New York mag. God, I love this. I feel like this is like OG Gossip Girl. I didn't even realize yeah. this was based upon anything. I just love the books and love the TV show. And who knew this entire time? And it's like then Olivia would have been what, like Serena Vanderwoodson, right? Coming back from somewhere. Yeah, in a way, right? Like kind of controversial. Yes, totally. It was really fascinating. But I think it just goes to the, in a sense, these are kind of like career things for a certain type of woman. Yeah. But how is it a career thing? Because how do they make money from this exposure? I think. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's evolved. I suppose a long time ago, it was kind of a proxy for a career in terms of 40 years ago in the 50s and 60s. As we discussed earlier, they were having these society events and these charity balls and careers weren't really accessible to women. And so what was accessible and what uses actually like a lot of career skills in a way was like organizing these parties and getting donations and getting people interested Mm -hmm. in it. And it was it was, I think, an outlet for these women who 
didn't need to work and couldn't work because there wasn't really work for women and didn't need to be providing childcare. And they had cooks and stuff to channel (laughs) their skills and their energy and their education into something. And like, you can say it's silly, but it's what there was. Now I think we have the concept of like ladies who launch and most of these like society people have these businesses. I mean, I think Nell Diamond, who does Hill House, is very well educated. I think she went to Princeton and then to business school, but she comes from a family like that. And it's just the new kind of society thing is to have a business and like a lot of them turn into like real businesses. So I think that you make money. It's similar to being an influencer, just in a different way, right? Yeah, like, I, as you're talking Santa about Domingo, it. <laughs> right. Lauren Santa Domingo started Moda Operandi. And I think largely why she was able to start that was because she'd been featured in Vogue. She was a Vogue editor. She had a column in Vogue. And she was able to establish herself by kind of playing ball with the press and playing ball with these like societal things as an authority on fashion and aesthetics and what's cool and chic and what's not. Yeah. So the it's funny because the heiress in my year at Yale, she went on to like work at Vogue where it's like famously low paying, right? Like you do not get paid very much to be an assistant Vogue editor, which is how you start off. So it's really like a flex of wealth and ability to take that low paying salary and enter that world and then have that kind of stamp in fashion because it's Mm -hmm. just not really, I don't know. I don't know how else like you get that kind of stamp in fashion and ability to build that credibility to then like build your own fashion brand. Cause it's like, if I started something, I guess, I mean, maybe I could start workwear, but other than that, like no one really cares what I wear. Right. Now you can do it sort of organically by building an Instagram following or something. But at that time, you you couldn't. And yeah. I think with Vogue and stuff also, I think this has changed a little bit. But it, it was beyond just being able to survive taking a low-paying mm-hmm. job. It was also, there used to be sort of an expectation of not just how you were dressed in terms of being fashionable and put together, but kind of like the labels and designers that you would wear. And so you needed to probably have the resources to at least be able to buy some of those things. Yeah. Emily Weiss, who started, oh my gosh, I am sound creepy. I'm like an encyclopedia. <laughs> you know so much about these people. I'm almost like, some of the names I'm like, I don't, I've don't. i never even heard of. She started Glossier. Oh, okay, yeah. And she was on the hills as like the good uh-huh. intern from the East Coast who was like really good at it. But she used to be in Teen Vogue all the time as a high schooler buying like $2,000 sweaters Ooh. (laughs) in the the 2000s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is wild. I even think like I'm still learning so much. And I I did learn a lot about like brands and labels and et cetera. But I still feel like there's labels and brands and indicators of wealth that I have not even tapped really. And it's been a kind of an organic process because no one in that circle is ever like, oh, yeah, like these are the brands that I shop at. And like these are there's not like a how to style guide, really. It's very like word of mouth and less like this is a list and how to. Totally. And I think there's also an element of having the social awareness to toe the line between conforming to what everyone's doing and what everyone's wearing and still having your own personal style and your stamp. Mm-hmm. Because I think in the socialite rank scenario, Olivia was young and just kind of like, okay, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing, which works in high school. But for adults, people are like, oh, she's just like a copycat, like wannabe. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And recently what I learned about a brand, I think it's called like Kate and it's just so expensive. Oh, yeah. yeah. I looked at their site website and I was like, oh my God, I both feel old and poor at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the stuff, I think that what I would say about designer clothing in general is that most of it is a little bit more trendless, even though everything has like a personality. And Mm -hmm. so you can wear pieces for years with a lot of things, even from brands that try and be classic, like J. Crew. I just Mm -hmm. think this stuff looks so dated after two or three years. Yeah, yeah. When I first was able to buy J. Crew or like even Theory for myself, I was like, excellent. This is going to last forever. Yeah, I do love Theory. I do think Theory is timeless. But like J. Crew, I was like, this is going to last forever. And you're right. There is a cycle to it that is different. Whereas like, you know, my Theory sheath dresses, going to have them for forever. And it's definitely something that I know will stand the test of time. But I just even like jewelry brands like Van Cleef, I had never even heard of. I was like, what is it Van Cleef? And now I, once you see it, like you see it everywhere. And it's like, you just see this subtle indicator of wealth, but it's not like they advertise. No, I don't think so. I think magazines a little bit. Okay, I they know, do. I haven't right. read a physical magazine in so long, but <laughs> I know same, same. But um, the point is there. Yeah, the ways in which all of this flows, it very much reminds me of. I always show my intellectual property class this like one clip from The Devil Wears Prada, right, where they talk about the color cerulean and mm-hmm. when they Iconic talk about like moment. right, and they're like these two belts, they're so different, and Anne Hathaway's character laughs, and then Meryl Streep does her like iconic little monologue about how fashion flows and color flows. And I think there is something to that, Mm -hmm. that all these decisions about what is, I guess, high class, what is like trendy happens way above any of our heads. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's interesting because I think that is shifting with Instagram and TikTok and people online. There's not one place that we go to to look for trend inspiration or clothing or what's cool, you know, it's, it's a little bit more democratized in some ways, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, which is really great. And we would be remiss if we don't talk about the, one of, I think, like the biggest indicators of being in this scene, right, which is the Hermes Birkin. (laughs) (laughs) I always, this is like the naivete of me, right? But I was like, Oh, my gosh, I am making so much money as a first-year associate, and I will be able to buy all these nice bags. And I don't know. I talk to like people who are even partners, and they're like, eh, I don't even know if I would feel comfortable spending that amount on a bag. How much are they? Like, what, 20000 30000 And that's if you can get one? No. Retail, I haven't bought one this year yet, but retail generally, they were the last time I bought one between... 10, 5, and 15 for leather. Exotics are more special editions like the cargo or the shadow or anything that is a little different is more. But but for a basic colored entry-level Birkin. Okay, but what then makes it exclusive? I admit I haven't even like tried to buy one. So like, why do we associate this bag with exclusivity, with like wealth, with like luxury? Yeah, because they won't sell them to you. I mean, maybe they would, but you go into Hermes and you have to kind of develop a relationship with the sales associate to get the bag. Like a particular one. 
yeah, you go to the same sales associate all the time. You wouldn't, mm-hmm. you wouldn't shop with somebody else. And like, if you go to Hermes and your sales associate isn't working that day, most people, unless there was a reason they needed to buy like this scarf for this event that they're having tonight, I think most Hermes shoppers would leave and come back when they could see their associate. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of develop a relationship with a sales associate and then they have to make a case to the store manager about selling you a quota bag. Quota bags are Birkins and Kelly's. I think maybe one other bag. I don't really know because it's not a bag I'm interested in. If it is, is it one. quota bag because there's a certain quota that they sell every year? It's a quota bag because they're only allowed to sell two per year to each client. So it's a quota of if you're buying mm. a Birkin, you can only buy two Birkins a year unless the manager makes a special exception, which they do not often do. Got it. And even to be like a quote unquote client, as you say, it requires another level of, I guess, like entering a space because you can't just like buy a scarf and be like, oh, I am also interested in a book. And they'd be like, get out of here. Exactly. I mean, sometimes not, though. There are stories about people going in and just for some reason, the sales associate really likes them and likes their vibe Mm. and sold them on that day. Like that happens. But generally, the lore is that you need to have a one-to-one spend before you'll be offered a bag. So if you you want a $12,000 Birkin bag, you need to spend $12,000 at Hermes on other items, is the rumor. (laughs) I don't know that that's true. I don't think that's been exactly true in my experience, but that is is what's sort of Okay, so how did you get a Birkin? I got a Kelly first, actually. And when I got married... I did not have a wedding, and so we didn't register. And I really wanted China, and I liked the Hermes China patterns. Not that I disliked them, but I wasn't as into the Hermes China patterns that are there, ones that they carry through every year that are very, like, Mm age-heavy and traditional. But they do, like, beautiful China in seasonal or yearly prints. And I really liked it. And so I went to go buy China, and the girl who was helping us She was from Texas, kind of near where I'm from, and she and I just really Mm. bonded. And so I started shopping with her. And then, yeah, I think I bought a watch the day I bought my Kelly bag, which may have helped. But I I kind of, like, pushed her. I was like, I I actually, I was like, no, like, I can feel that there's something down there for me. She was like, okay, fine. (laughs) She's like, you got me. We have enough connections. It's so funny that. I think in the modern era, right, like I'd never think of shopping as a personal connection thing. It's a relationship issue. I'm mostly like, oh, isn't shopping like a money thing? Like if you have have enough money, you can buy most things. But there is still a world of items here, like the Birkin, the Kelly, where it does seem to be a lot more relationship based still. Like is that particular sales associate, do they like you? I agree. And I think that higher end shopping is largely relationship based. Like Bergdorf Goodman has a very large personal shopper program. And so a lot of the people who buy a lot of their clothes at Bergdorf Goodman have a person that they work with who sort of acts like a quasi stylist. And they'll say like, you'll text them and say like, oh, I'm going to this event. And so what should I wear? This is what I'm thinking. And they'll text pictures or you'll go and there'll be a dressing room already set up with their ideas of what you should wear mm-hmm. with shoes, with bags, with jewelry, with all of it, depending upon your general preferences. And they'll walk the store with you and things like that. So I agree. 
But I think that at the higher ends, that's what differentiates because, you know, the stores have to, to get like client loyalty. When Mm -hmm. somebody has that kind of money to spend, having the best stuff doesn't help. Everybody has great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There was one partner I loved because she would just have the best clothing and she disclosed that really every season her personal shopper would come over to her apartment and just like carry racks and racks of stuff for the season and she would try them on and like keep the ones that she wanted to keep and I guess the stylist would take back the ones that she didn't pick and I was just like I mean I was a summer associate here so I was like listening to her talk about this and I was like whoo what a way to live life what a way to like you know you don't even shop for yourself really it's crazy even when I worked at J Crew when I was in school we had a program where for like better top clients we could send things on consignment so we'd Mm. have their card on file and they could keep them in their house for like three days or seven days or something Mm -hmm. and then they'd only be charged for what didn't come back to the store Yeah. Yeah. So it's like funny because if you know these rules, I can see how you can kind of move in that society a little bit easier. And I think that what like scammers like Anna Delvey was really, really successful at is that despite not really being a German heiress or whatever, she seemed to already know all of the social code and like the sumptuary consumption Mm -hmm. like habits of this like New York high society people, right? I didn't know her, but that's certainly what I've heard. And I think it's true. I think you have to kind of be able to blend in. Yeah. And that's what what she was really good at. And so good that she managed to scam all these people out of a lot and a lot of money. But (laughs) okay, so that brings us to our current scammer that I really want to talk about, which is George Mickham. Is it Mickham? Is that how you say it? Yeah, it's Mickham. Yeah, George Mickham. So this is breaking news, guys. So this New York fashion executive who asked not to be identified, really all of the quotes about this. I'm the only one. (laughs) Yeah, Hannah, you're the only one who's like willing to go with your name on it. (laughs) Everyone else is like anonymous, asked to be unidentified. So this New York (laughs) fashion executive says, George is a total grifter. He goes to any party he can to social climb and meet people. He can spot and target a rich person in any room. He studies people like a talented Mr. Ripley. And he's like, like you said, he's often photographed at these events with other people like publishing heiress Jillian Hurst. He attends fancy galas and benefits. Like, I I don't know. (laughs) A lot of these names are like foreign to me, like Save Venice. Oh, Save the Frick. You don't know about Save Venice? Is it to save Venice, Italy? Yeah. Yeah. Is that a gala in New York? This is like one of the biggest charity galas in New York. Yeah. It's like one of the hardest ones. It's one of the only ones that you can't just buy a ticket. You have to buy a ticket, but but they like send invitation. You can't like go online. Yeah, you get like the the invite to buy the ticket. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a very popular, it's like a fashion people darling charity gala. Ah. I've never been, but it's usually a masquerade, I believe, which is fun. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Say Venice, the Frick Collection, Yum Fellows Ball, the Couture Council Luncheon. I don't know what that is. Okay. (laughs) Great. (laughs) We both don't know something. I was, like, looking into the New York Public Library. They have, like, a gala every year, too, Mm -hmm. and how to attend that. And it was also, you have to be a Yum member, and then you have to, like, buy the ticket on top of that. But it still seemed, like, fairly straightforward, whereas these, I'm like, I haven't even heard of. And... Like you said, with Save Venice, we would 
never even get the opportunity to buy a ticket. And I don't even want to know how much a ticket costs. Do I? $2,200 last year. I think that's, I might be wrong about that, but I think, I think somebody last minute had an extra one and it was going to be 2,200. It was like the day before. So I didn't go. You didn't. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a hard turnaround. I think that's right. That also might be wrong. I don't know. Anyway. That is it. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm saying so many things from memory on this pod. And I'm like, I'm sure people are going to be like, that's wrong. I'm like, well, I didn't. I'm just remembering. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get a fact checker for <laughs> next time. <laughs> we'll have a third person just fact checking us. Yeah. So George would go to these events. Yeah. And so did you meet him at one of these? I met him at dinner with a mutual friend. And then we used to have dinner all the time. And I want to say also, I have very complicated feelings about it because George and I were very, very good friends. Mm-hmm. We were really close. And at many times he was like a very good friend to me. Like when how I many was first years? Divorced, sorry. How many years? About three like, years. Okay. When I was first getting divorced, he was like, oh, that lawyer is not good enough. And he like set me up with a different lawyer who I actually didn't use. I'd already hired a lawyer, but it was like such an authentic, like genuine, yeah. like he's done a lot of nice things. He's very, very charismatic. He's very likable. He has this like kind of over the top flamboyant personality that really works for him. But what's interesting about George is most of these people, people are like, oh, Anna Delby was like such an insider. But if you look at Getty Images or BAFTA or Patrick McMullen, there aren't any pictures of Anna Delby. There are tons of like, George was really on the inside. Hmm. So he was like better at being Anna Delvey than Anna Delvey. Yeah. I mean, he grew up in sort of a world in Washington, but in in a world where there are a lot of these things. And he was really like the women he was allegedly selling counterfeit goods to were largely his good friends, like people Mm -hmm. he had been on trips with, people he would have lunch with every week, people where he was a member of their inner circle which is what's fascinating to me about it. And what's sort of emotionally complicated is I know too many of these people, many of whom I actually only met through George, Mm. but who I've talked to. And I just am sort of so convinced by their stories that I don't think that he and I can have a relationship also because I talked to the New York Post about him and that's probably (laughs) a big time deal breaker. But I mean, you probably don't talk to your (laughs) You probably shouldn't talk to the New York Post about your friend if you want to keep that friendship. Yes. So, yes. But I am like, were any of those friendships authentic? Was it all? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, why? Yeah. But it's a very complicated thing. I get the sense, and I don't know if this is true because I don't know Anna, but I get the sense that Anna was kind of like rotating through people and running these low-level scams to get a few thousand dollars at a time mm-hmm. or or tens of thousands of dollars. George was having long-term, real close friendships with people Mm -hmm. and at the same time selling them stuff. And that was, I think, why people say, why wouldn't you get a bag authenticated? Because if I bought something from a friend, it wouldn't occur to me that it would be fake. Yeah. Yeah. But why did they even buy it from him? I assume these people already had a bunch of good relationships with their sales associate at Hermes that it would just be easy to get one, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's... A few reasons. Not everybody does because there are a lot of people who I know who collect Hermes who prefer to buy secondhand because most secondhand Hermes bags are still new. They're often sold in the box. Mm -hmm. And whenever you're buying from Hermes, 
you can only buy two bags a year. Most people can actually buy four because their husband or boyfriend or whomever can also buy two. Is another person, yeah. Is another person. So you can only buy two bags a year. They are actually quite strict with that. You really have to be a massive Hermes client or have a special order or a special circumstance for them to exceed that two bag a year limit for you. And you also don't get to choose. I mean, it's difficult to choose exactly, exactly the value you want whenever you're buying from Hermes. This was just what I would personally say. I would say to my sales associate, oh, I really want a small Birkin bag, like a Birkin 25 in an earth tone or a shade of a blue. Mm -hmm. And you'll get that. But if you want a Birkin 25 in blue Zanzibar Togo leather with palladium hardware, you might not be able to like buy exactly the one that you want from Hermes. Or when I got my cargo Birkin, I got that actually because I'd asked for a different special edition Birkin. And she was like, it's not going to happen, but I Mm -hmm. have this one. one, And I actually am happy. I I prefer the cargo to the one I was originally asking for. But yeah, so that's one reason. Whereas George was like, I can get you the exact one that you want. Yeah. He said there's this guy, Michael Coast. He's like an executive vice president of Hermes, but he basically, I don't know his official title, but he basically deals with like VIP clients in Paris. Mm-hmm. And he said that he had connections to them and connections to all of the Hermes stores, like was just a big client in all of the Hermes stores throughout the city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I never spoke to him about selling bags. I sort of knew that he did it a little bit, but I, I think that there's a sense with anybody who's like, oh yeah, I can get that, that they are dealing somewhat with resellers and stuff as well. Yeah. But basically it's because you wouldn't necessarily be able to get the bag that you want when you mm-hmm. want it if you aren't buying it secondhand. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So George really was like, oh, but I can be kind of a broker in this relationship and help you get what you want. So I think another fascinating thing about this whole situation is that he is the son of a DC lobbyist. Like you mentioned, he grew up in DC, right? Son of DC lobbyist Sally A. Painter, who was briefly a senior advisor to the Clinton administration in the 90s. And he seems to like really have used the fact that his mom was a pretty high up person in DC politics to really gain credibility for himself, right? When it came to interfacing and like meeting people. Yeah, I want to speak just because of my personal, I think it's an important point. I want to speak because of my personal relationships with these people more generally about the concept of using a name or a parent or a good friend's or a spouse's title in society. I think it seems sort of silly, but it actually makes a lot of sense. We have the same thing in small towns where people are like, oh, what are you doing in this shop? And you say, oh, I'm Chip's nephew. Like, that's Mm -hmm. why I'm here. And so I think that with these groups, when somebody new comes on and, and look, wealthy people are constantly being sold things, being solicited, being asked for favors. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't do them. I'm saying that whenever you exist in that world, you have to kind of develop a radar for filtering out people who want things from you and don't want any sort of reciprocal, like aren't looking for a friendship who are just looking for something that you can provide. 
And so one of the ways to do that, and that's why like the schools and stuff kind of serve a similar purpose, whether that's an elementary school or a boarding school or a high school or a, or a prestigious university, it's a way of being like, oh, okay, I know who this person is and this is a safe person. It's obviously very, very different in the way that it's coded and, and classist and all of those things, but it's kind of like when I was little, my mom would always tell me, if you get lost, look for a woman who has children with her and oh, go to her yeah, because that's a, a safe, that's a safe person, right? And yeah. so it's like, oh, okay, I don't know this person, but they went to a different boarding school that's like my boarding school. And so I know that they basically kind of exist in the same culture that I do. And so they're probably a safe person to be friends with. And that's not to say that most other people, like the same as with the kid situation. Oh, yeah. I mean, the like the vast if I... majority of people are not going to hurt a kid. Like even most men and men are like the most yeah. dangerous. Like most men, if a crying kid comes up and is like, sir, like, can you please help me find my mom? Like he'll call the police or help. Yeah. Most men are not dangerous. And in the same way, like many, many people are not trying to get anything from their friendships totally. and their relationships. But it's it's a way that, that there's like a paranoia. People, yeah. Yeah. A paranoia or just like a, a way of like, oh, that's an easy check of like this person's yeah. probably fine. But then you can like thinking about it. Yeah. But then you can kind of flip it on its head. Right. And it's like, oh, if I really, really wanted to kidnap children, I would just surround myself with a bunch of kids and yeah. then superficially signal that I am this like safe person. And I think right. this is something that you can also do in society, right? And right. it seems to be something that George did where he was like, yeah. oh, you know, this is my mom. And so a source actually said that George would parade his mom around New York when she'd come to town from Washington, D.C. I had dinner and- with his mom. Oh, really? Okay. And I think that's another thing. And so this source, I, I, uh, not I liked you. Her. It wasn't, yeah, that was not me. That's not something I would have <laughs> said. I like his mom and my personal guess from having met this woman one time is that she was not involved in this. But yeah, I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Like she, I'm sure. Yeah. And so, yeah. So the source said meeting someone's mother adds a l- lot of credibility, especially when they've worked with the royals and have been photographed with King Charles. And this is kind of like you said, right? Where like, yeah, meeting someone's mom, you're like, oh, you're a real person. And your mom has a certain pedigree. And because there is a paranoia of are people going to befriend me for my money or to sell me something or blah, blah, blah. They kind of use that as a way to filter, I guess, and was like, okay, well, you pass the filter, like you get to arrive on the other side of this gate. Right. Yeah. Bernie Madoff did, it's a very different and much, much worse scam, but Mm -hmm. he did a very sort of similar thing where he largely used a small religious community that Mm -hmm. was built on a lot of trust and a lot of kind of interpersonal helping each other to, you know, because he was of the generation where a lot of Jewish people were immigrants or Holocaust survivors or the children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And he used that like strong community to exploit people because he had the same background. Totally. Yeah. And I think like that level of trust also makes it hard for alleged victims to speak out or have there be any consequences? Because really, aside from you, no one else has been like, oh, I'll seek recourse or I'll sue or I'll, or anything. It just seems yeah, like, you I know, mean, people are kind of half embarrassed or just like, 
I, I don't know, so like weirdly emotional about the betrayal and understand yeah, so. It's, yeah, it's very emotional. I think also like I posted a TikTok about it just saying about George sent me to the Hermes store in Paris to sort of shop with Michael Coast and that appointment did not actually exist, which is very uh. puzzling. But I made a TikTok about that and that's kind of funnier and more lighthearted than what happened to some of these other people, if that makes sense. But I knew that the TikTok would get views in the sense that I knew it was a fascinating story. I didn't actually realize at the time that it would be viewed by the people that it was. I I didn't realize that that page six would be in my Mm. DMs. And I was sort of like, well, I've spoken now with my name attached. Like, I, I guess what I'm saying is, even though I am on the record, I, I certainly understand why people don't want to be on the record. Yeah. And it's like a lot of things. It's funny because as a lawyer, I feel like a lot of people always think my intuition would be to like use the court of law or to sue or blah, blah, blah. But I feel like what I learned from being a lawyer and all of this is that if you can privately resolve everything, like that's always the best. Mm-hmm. And the more you can just go through other avenues other than strictly legal, like the better it is really. And there is something like you don't want to have to dredge up everything on in a deposition in a court of law when you kind of do just want to move on move with on. Your life. Yeah. Yeah. Like not think about this in two years time and think again, like, oh my God, my friend allegedly scammed me. Or I guess in this case, not allegedly, they would say that like they were scammed. Yes. What I can say happened to me was George sent me to the appointment the appointment didn't exist, whether that was a miscommunication or whether that was another evidence of something more calculated happening is... We don't know. I, on the record, can only speak to the truth of my experience. I can't... I I certainly can speculate, but but not factually about the reasons for that. No, and like that is is embarrassing. Like I'm thinking about if one of my friends set me up and was like, oh, you know, here's a potential job interview, blah, blah, blah. And I arrived and they were like, oh, it doesn't exist. I would, I don't know. Just like- You'd be mortified, right? Yeah. And embarrassed and ashamed and humiliated. And I don't know, just a lot of complicated feelings. Because you'd be like, why did you send me to this? Which would make me more emotional and more also like, did my friend do anything wrong? Because who would do this? Yeah. Yeah. And especially in like the, so I feel really uncomfortable in like luxury stores for the most part. I got my first luxury bag two, three years ago, and I didn't even know you should make an appointment to buy stuff. So even oh, the whole like standing in line, it's true. Oh, it is Standing like, in line is crazy to me. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, you don't need an appointment, but I still realized that best practices was to get an appointment by only figuring right. that out after standing in line and then realizing that like there was this whole system of doing things that I had very, very obviously come into and been like, hi, I'm an outsider. I'm a newcomer. And that was like, I don't like the whole environment is very anxiety inducing already. And to have a friend's betrayal associated with that is kind of unfortunate. I think what like makes me the saddest about the situation is because in all con artistry, you have to prey upon, like you said, trust or Mm -hmm. human hope or like Mm -hmm. dreams, you have to prey upon something that is so core and so beautiful to human existence. But then you like ruin that. And like, yeah, I think so sad. 
I think that to me, when any of these things happen, I understand that the facts of it make it hard to feel bad for people in some ways. And it is kind of silly and funny. And I, I, I understand the entertainment value of all of this stuff. But I think that's what people sometimes don't understand is it's an exploitation of a relationship. And that's hurtful, regardless of your station in life. Yeah, yeah. So there's this psychologist who studies con artists. And she said, this is a quote from her, Maria Konnikova, con artistry works because we want it to work, because it appeals to something that's very deeply human, which is our beliefs, our need for hope, our optimism, the fact that we see the world differently than it actually is. Everyone is vulnerable to this, even if you don't think you are. And I feel like I totally would be vulnerable to someone coming up and being like, oh, do you want a Burke? And it's like, yeah, of, of course I do. And like, I want to think about right. our relationship as like a trusting one. I want to think that I have access to this world. And I mean, I don't know if I would have given someone $22,000, but <laughs> I would have been interested and intrigued by it, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I know. I don't know. Any final thoughts on this George Mickham situation? <laughs> I feel like you've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. As your lawyer, not really. Um, you should probably stop talking. <laughs> uh, it's really crazy, though. We'll see what else happens. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. And I hope everyone's able to see their therapist, heal from the situation emotionally and financially, because this is not a fun one to be in. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you guys for sticking with us. And we will be back next week with another episode. Have a yes. great week. Have a great week. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on socials, TikTok, Substack. <laughs> yeah, all the ones. And yeah, please share this episode with your friends if you yes. found it enlightening. And, and of next course, week, I think we can record in person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'll be really fun. So yeah. we'll get an in-person recording, which hopefully helps with the audio latency because I think Jesus. the internet connection We're going to get is, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, I think the internet connection is kind of bad and my editing is not up to par, but okay. We'll figure it out. But yeah, see you, guys, you guys later. Bye.